Welcome to UUCSW Reflections, a podcast by the Unitarian Universalist Congregational Society of Westboro, Massachusetts. We're glad you're here. Welcome to UUCSW Reflections. I'm your host, Amanda Hall, here with Reverend Laurel Gray. This is the monthly episode of this podcast where we reflect on this month's sermons and answer questions from the congregation. If you'd like to submit a question, please email it to podcasts at uucsw.org or drop it in the suggestion box in the sanctuary when we can safely access the sanctuary. Be sure to say which sermon your question is about. Don't worry, we won't share the names or identifying information about question askers on this podcast. May's theme was Thresholds, and in this episode, we'll be discussing the sermons Becoming, Bridging, and People of a Covenant, all of which can be found in this podcast feed. Hi, Laurel. Hi. Hello. We're back at it. How are you? Good. I'm glad to be chatting with you. Yeah, a lot has definitely happened since the last time we talked. Yes. It has been a wild ride. And this month did not go exactly as was originally planned. No, it did not. So I was I was originally supposed to preach on the 31st about our sort of looking towards our plan for next year, but ended up needing to take a, a trip to Minneapolis wearing a face mask for a family emergency. And so some other people stepped up and then given all of the protests all over the country, I recorded a sermon that I had planned to preach in January when we got snowed out. And so that's the sort of third edition, which is why the three in a row this month aren't necessarily connected in the way that they sometimes are. I think there are some ways in which they are connected, but we can talk about that a little bit later. We can start with this last one. It's not typical that you will put out a sermon unexpectedly. I know this one has originally written to air in January for Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. Why did you put out this sermon now? That's a good question. And it was something that I wrestled with quite a bit because it is sort of out of the norm. And I don't normally send congregational wide emails on a Saturday about something that's happening. But part of it was that I, so I was in Minneapolis, which is where my sister's family lives. And so I was physically aware George Floyd was killed. I mean, not in his neighborhood, but I was in the city where he was killed. And so I was in the city where all of these protests started happening. And so I I mean, I could hear all the sirens and all the the helicopters and all the things. And so it was such an immediate reality. And I had a lot of congregants wondering if I was personally safe. And so it felt, it felt like a really critical moment. And that was even before they started to sort of spread wider all of these protests. But the thing that compelled me was there's something called freedom of the pulpit. And it basically means that no one can muzzle a minister and so no one can tell you what you can and cannot say from a pulpit but the precondition of that is that you have been chosen to be the minister for that congregation and so in a way you've been given this freedom but you've also been given the responsibility to hold it and so in sort of wrestling with what it meant to write that letter and record another sermon, I sort of came to terms with how much freedom of the pulpit is. It's an honor, but it's also a responsibility that I am uniquely bound to as the minister of this congregation. And so it felt unethical and like it would be wildly out of covenant for me not to speak and not to say something when there's so much violence being finally recognized against specifically black people in this country. I had not heard of freedom of the pulpit before, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, freedom of speech. 
Yes. Yeah, right. And it's and it's different from freedom of speech because freedom of speech applies to everybody. And there can be a lot of confusion that freedom of the pulpit applies to anybody who leads a service. But part of the history is that it was a thing that was meant for clergy people. And it's not just a, you get to do whatever you want. It's that you're you're sort of held to being prophetic. It's an honor and a responsibility. So in addition to being trained and licensed, we also have endowed specifically in you as a congregation. Yes. That power and that responsibility. Right. And you are in a position of power when you step behind a pulpit. Right. Which is why being held by all the kinds of covenants that we're held by as professionals and all the training is so important because it is not, it's not a blanket freedom, right? It doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. It's more of this responsibility that if you're stepping into this place, you have the responsibility to speak the truth. And I would say like speak the truth in the name of justice, like speaking the truth and doing harm I would say, is a misuse of that freedom in the same way that hate speech falls outside of the bounds of freedom of speech. So impact matters. So speaking about a covenant, one thing that I've noticed in this moment is a lot of people being called into the fight for racial justice in this country and really looking for something to do. You know, what can we do? What actions can I personally take? What is my activism going to look like? In the midst of that, one question I would ask is, how do we approach that from a place of groundedness and in a way that is sustainable and truly works within our covenant towards justice? I think that it's really important to remember the place from which the spirit of this work grows and I think especially as as white people and, and privileged white people in ways above just being white. I think there can be this desire to have it be done because seeing injustice and specifically seeing the violence against black people in this country is so horrifying and can to us be so surprising that we just want to fix it. Yeah. And so I think it's it's really important to find a different place to start from that's not we're going to get rid of it. And this is hard to even talk about, right? Because like, yes, the hope is to eradicate these systems that oppress certain people. But if we need the completion to show in order to keep us going, if we need that kind of positive feedback, we started in the wrong place. Mm. And that kind of work isn't sustainable. If we need to know that each little thing that we do has a clear, direct impact, when it's all so complicated and it takes so long and it takes so much soul searching and awkward conversations and really thinking about when there's a big gap between our intent and our actual impact and being to reflect on that and learn from it and then change the way that we act again and not get stuck or frozen. So I think in a large part, my role as a minister in this is to try to help people find their roots and find the place to plant themselves to sort of be able to engage in these struggles in a way that is honestly in service to justice and not just in service to our own desire to not be distraught about it and to be sustainable, to be able to keep going. I think that part of what's really hard or can be really hard about Unitarian Universalism is that it's sort of the question is jokingly raised about if we're really just a social justice club and if we're really a religious organization. And humanism is an incredibly significant portion of our history and population and people's belief systems. 
And I think it's also really important to remember our sort of spiritual footing and maybe maybe you call that your ethical footing or maybe you call that your moral integrity or the strength of your relationships and community. But finding, like digging down into that place where you're connected to other people and you're connected to what you value gets beneath the hustle of needing to do the right thing. Yeah. Because it comes if it comes from the wellspring of this is what I believe, this is who I am, these are the people who are doing this with me, that is a place in which we can admit that we're wrong, in which we don't need to be a lone hero, right? Like, it sort of pushes back against all these things that are sort of tenets of white supremacy culture, of like individualism and perfectionism and needing to do it all yourself. And so I think the more that we can root down into the ways of being that are inherently justice-oriented, that is itself an action. I completely agree. And that way, when we find ourselves in the energy-sucking cycle of reputation management, yes, it's easier to catch ourselves doing that and say, okay, this action is coming from a place of, I want to be seen as one of the good ones. Right. I don't want to feel bad about it anymore. Yeah. I don't want to see all of these bad things happening and feel like I don't personally have the power to fix it all myself. Right. And what you're naming is a really important and sort of insidious thing that I've seen, especially these last several weeks, which is people shaming each other for not being better activists or better allies. And we know from people who study shame that shame doesn't actually get you to change, it gets you to perform. And right, shame is the feeling that there's something wrong with you. It's not guilt, which is you did something wrong, and guilt can be a motivator, but shame shuts you down. And so I think one of the really potent things is to root down into the place, which for us is universalism, that says your value is never conditional, right? Like you are never, you are never outside the circle of love. And so if you start in that place, that is an antidote to the shame, which I think is really necessary because there's so much of it and there's so much self-shaming, which doesn't necessarily help. Well, it's also a call in to accountability. Right. It's the exact opposite of letting yourself off the hook. Yeah, you don't get to be a lost cause. Yeah, you don't get to throw your hands up and give up. Right. You are never at the point where we give up on you. Right. You can't get there. Yeah, right. Nobody is outside of the web of humanity. You just don't, you never are. And like, what an incredible blessing that is and a reminder that we are in fact all inextricably linked. So I've heard a lot of different things about the book White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. One extremely valid criticism I've heard is why is the preeminent book and authority in this field a white woman? Black people have written books about this subject too. Right. So I think we can sit with that discomfort while simultaneously acknowledging that I got a lot out of it. Yeah. So I have it in my library, let's say. It's not the only book (laughs) is the way that I'm trying to reconcile that. (laughs) Yes, right. (laughs) Don't only read White Fragility. (laughs) So, but again, like I caught myself doing it just the second. You know, I'm saying, okay, first I read White Fragility. I thought it was, you know, helpful to me. I saw people criticizing White Fragility because it was by a white person. I felt guilty and like I had to couch the fact that I read it right. in some kind of face-saving yep. acknowledgement that I will also do something else and right. then I said it on this podcast right. like it's it's all really complicated right and we're gonna be human in it yeah but I think like 
the first step is being able to see that cycle of, I mean, just acknowledging and watching how much energy, attention, lip service, and time goes into feeling that cognitive dissonance and that fear of being found out as someone who is mockable, who is not in on it, who doesn't get it, who is one of the bad ones, who's clueless, and wanting to try to shore up against that by performing activism or performing allyship. Right. I mean, at this point, I personally don't think that I'm capable of avoiding that. I think I'm getting to the place where I can watch myself do it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right. Well, and that's where like, this isn't, nobody's, nobody's going to be done with this, right? Like, like white supremacy is a thing that's just simply everywhere. Yeah. That's constantly telling us that whiteness is the thing that's normal. And so it it is this constant ongoing process of acknowledging it and seeing it and naming it, right? Because one of the sort of tenets of it too is that it's invisible and can't be spoken. But all of that is like really exhausting and it can be really daunting. And I think shame is not a helpful thing to add. Like guilt is maybe helpful to say like, oops, I didn't, like I wish I hadn't done that because that's learning. But I think we do have to start from the place of, right, inherent worth, like we're saying that nobody's worth is in question, anybody's, right. which is a really rough thing to hold, right? Because it's a lot easier to vilify people. Yeah. It is. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm human too. <laughs> uh, isn't it? awful and wonderful to be human it's so hard i know it is <laughs> oh it's like the thing in the world. okay so talking about things that are a challenge and very complicated yep. and nuanced i'm having a struggle right now deciding what to talk about on this podcast yep. and i think i'm just gonna like talk it out with you <laughs> so yep. first of all i know that what we're talking about right now is anti-Black racism in America. Right. And as a corollary of that, the responsibility of white people during this moment. The reason that we're focusing on white people as much as we are is because you're white, I'm white, our congregation right. is... Mostly white, yeah. Mostly white. And so when we're talking about our thoughts, feelings, and actions, we're talking about the thoughts, feelings, and actions of white people. Yeah. Um, I am extremely aware that the thoughts, feelings, and actions of white people get disproportionate focus. And so right now we're giving additional airtime to something that is already centered and considered the baseline in our entire society, which is the fundamental problem that we're fighting against. Right. At the same time, talking about whiteness, examining it, is crucial to undoing white supremacy. So. And that's the work of white people. Yes. Right. Right. That's like, that's on us. Right. So I'm feeling in a bit of a bind about this entire episode, honestly. I don't know if we're doing it right. (laughs) I don't know if I'm doing it right. Yeah. Well, and that's where like, it's all really conflicting. There's both the sort of pass the mic of when you have a platform, you need to use it to amplify the voices of black and brown people. And then there can also be the not speaking up because you're white because it's actually just uncomfortable. And so it's really complicated. Yeah. And those two things on the surface really do feel contradictory. 
Right. If you're learning as an ally, which, by the way, every ally always is. Right. An ally is a verb, right? It's like you you only are the thing when you're doing the thing. Right. And you're getting messages that are not conflicting, but look to you to be conflicting because of your blind spots. Yeah. And for me, those are white people talk too much and they talk over people of color and black people and those who are directly affected. And white silence is violence. Yes. White silence is complicity. So I would love any insight that you have into situations where one of those is more salient than the other, how to incorporate them both into your practice of allyship. Yeah. Yeah. So I will say that one thing that I think is always an important question is what work is this doing? And I remember one of my classmates asked this question say you share some kind of grief with someone and they say, at least it's not this, or it could be worse. Mm. The work that that's doing is to deny your pain while sort of on the surface seeming cheerful. And so I think when we do anything, that's a good question to ask because it speaks to the impact of what will happen out of this. And you're right, it's all really complicated, which is why I think it's always good to sort of be in that place of curiosity of saying, I'm trying and it might not be getting this right. And so I'm going to keep asking what work this is doing. Like, what is the impact of what I'm doing here? And do I need to shift? Because there's also the problem, right? There's the I mean, on Instagram, this there's this hashtag Amplify Melanated Voices, which is awesome. And that doesn't mean that you as a white person stand silent when really your voice is what needs to be directed at your peers. And so yeah. I think it is so complicated. And, and my question is, is this in service to the people who need justice? I, I mean, as a person, as we talked about, as someone bound to the free pulpit, It's both really important that when I choose readings and choose words and choose all of the different people's voices and people's work that I integrate into a service, that I'm never just using the sort of old white men, Um, that I'm always in different ways. And it's not just the sort of lip service on like MLK Sunday that you have a, a reading from Maya Angelou, right? We're always trying to incorporate voices of people of color and and voices that aren't necessarily heard, that doesn't indicate that I should also not speak up when I'm a person who needs to. Because as a minister, right, like so much of my job is writing and speaking. And to expect, like, it would have been awful if I had called one of my Black colleagues and asked them to write the letter for me, right? That's asking other people to do your labor for you. And so I think the question is, what work is this doing? And is this in service to justice truthfully? Or is this to make me feel better or because I'm uncomfortable? But you're right, it's really complicated. I think it's also contextual. If you are in a group of white peers, it is your responsibility to break white complicity and silence. If you're at a protest, you don't grab the bullhorn right black people who (laughs) are speaking yes and you don't start your own protest right like we don't need to take up that much space but we need we do need to like apply our power in support of that work right i mean you also mentioned another thing that seems on the surface to be a little bit contradictory there's a lot of emphasis on don't put learning and emotional labor 
like don't center that responsibility on black people it is not the responsibility of a black person to teach you how to not be racist don't ask them don't ask them what to do you know that is insulting and draining their energy and it sort of like reinstigates the same problem well then on the other hand the people who are most qualified to speak on this issue whose voices are most important to be amplified are black people and black leaders and in whichever context you're in there's black leadership doing the work usually already for me the balance i found like kind of my rule of thumb is whose terms is this on is this education on my terms or is it on their terms is this action my idea or is it their idea you know if it's like buying a book written by a black person on this subject Yes. DMing a black person to ask them a question. No. Right. (laughs) Right. Engaging in a conversation if they bring it up with you. Yes. Great. Yes. Asking them to point out your blind spots for you or how you can help. No. And, And again, that's the sort of what work is this doing? Because if the goal in the learning is really to support the justice of black people and to create the equity that is not part of the systems of our country or even this world, then asking them to do more labor for you is at odds with the fundamental goal. Yeah. But these you sort of have to think through this of like, when is there a really big disparity between my intent and my impact? Yeah. And maybe what really is my intent? If I really dig down into like what I'm looking for, am I looking for relief from the anguish of seeing this much pain? What are we really trying to find when we ask for that labor of Black people? Yeah. Kind of on that subject of Black leadership, I think the Black Lives of UU are providing some incredible leadership to Unitarians, Unitarian Universalists in general right now. So I want to encourage people to look them up, follow them on social media. They held a vigil and it has been recorded. I, I will link to it in the show notes. And... In the context of discussing vigils, I want to circle back to the first sermon of this month, which was Becoming, which was about rituals, rituals marking significant life changes. Yep. Life cycle changes. Including death and memorials. I want to talk to you about why grieving in public and grieving together is important. And I'm not going to ask you a question. I would just love to hear (laughs) your thoughts about it. I remember reading, I'm trying to remember which book it was, but in one of Brene Brown's books, she talks about how powerful this is, about the necessity of grieving in public. And in my experience, it sort of falls into this whole category of these life cycle rituals. When something really significant has changed, we can't hold that alone. And to try to is sort of spirit crushing. And amidst the magnitude of grief, I think there's a balm in knowing that you're not alone in it. Mm. Because once our lives have been impacted by death, the hardest thing is like returning to life, right? Remembering how to live when death sort of clouds your vision. And I think vigils are a really potent way of society doing that sort of collectively, where we have to acknowledge the pain and we have to acknowledge the suffering and we have to acknowledge the grief in this case of lives lost to police violence. And we can't really show up in an honest way without giving space for the grief 
because ignoring it denies why the whole thing is horrifying in the first place. And so I think there's something really powerful in those public moments of witness and and sort of feeling out in the open, especially about the things that, you know, are supposed to be silent, if like we were talking about white supremacy culture and how it's not supposed to be named. And part of the insidiousness of it is that whiteness is the norm and so you never, like you never have to specify that you're talking about whiteness. And so I think to have that in public is a really powerful and necessary thing. I agree. And once again, I'm going to link in the show notes to the recording of the vigil that the UUA held. And I think that's a good place to wrap up our conversation for this month. Well, and I will say, I want to thank you for really sincerely engaging in this conversation and asking good questions. And it is fitting that today is Juneteenth when we're recording this. Um, Yeah. And so I think... It's a really powerful thing for, for not as the only powerful thing, but it's a powerful thing for white people to be able to have these conversations with each other and start the sort of very vulnerable and awkward and uncomfortable process of walking into a conversation we maybe don't know how to have. I hope our listeners feel encouraged and invited and hopefully a little bit more grounded in the humanness of all of this. Well, I hope so too. With that, we will talk to everybody next month. Okay. Thanks, Amanda. Stay healthy, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. For more information about what's happening at UUCSW or for ways to get involved, visit us online at uucsw.org or visit us in person. All are welcome. 